You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time, and all of our episodes are broken up into three sections. In the first section, we just give you an outline of the text that we're going to study for the particular episode, and today we are in Daniel chapter 9. We're in the second half of Daniel that is filled with a lot of apocalyptic literature. Uh, It's prophetic, and it's a lot harder to interpret than the first half of the book, which is very easy because it's all narrative. Uh, A lot of really interesting stuff in the book of Daniel that we've covered already. But chapter 9, as Drew and I were talking before we hit the record button a little while ago, the end of this chapter is going to have a little section that I'm not sure we could figure out maybe without you know the scholarly interpretations from the past <laughs> uh, well that and uh, it depends on which scholar scholarly interpretation you look at because yeah, that's true there are so many different opinions about it we're going to try to uh, pull out what we can know and you know whatever's still a mystery at the end we just accept that yeah we hope um, we're not scaring you off by telling you that but this is a really interesting chapter, and Drew has... Drew, you've called this one the 70s. Yeah, the 70s. Why have we called this one the 70s? <laughs> well, it, it begins with a prophecy involving the number 70 and ends with a prophecy involving the number 70. That makes sense. So, um, it starts out in chapter 9, verse 1, dated as the first year of Darius the Mede. And... Um, this is the guy that we read about in Daniel 6, right? right. Not Darius the Great, mm-hmm. but Darius the Mede, who ruled alongside the Persians. And chronologically, we're probably talking a little bit before the episode of Daniel in the Lion's Den, right? Because this is the first year of Darius. Yeah, yeah. And and he was friendly. Well, he was friendly to Daniel, except for that time he threw him in the lion's den. Yeah. Other than that, uh, everything was great. Yeah, it was a complicated relationship. Uh, but anyway, we digress. Uh, he learned from reading the prophet Daniel learned from reading the prophecies of Jeremiah that the time of the captivity of his people would be seventy years. There's our first seventy. Uh, really interesting, by the way, to see a prophet reading another prophet's work. Mm-hmm. And it's a reminder that Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporary with each other. And yeah. Jeremiah was, um, well, he was gone by this time um, because he was an old man when Jerusalem fell. Daniel was a young man at that time. And uh, now Daniel's like 80 years old if we uh, accept the timeline that's given to us here. And I don't see why we wouldn't. Back when we did a podcast for the book of Jeremiah, we noted these prophecies. I think they're in a couple of places, one being Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, where Jeremiah predicted the captivity and said it would last 70 years. Here's Daniel saying, yep, it looks like it's winding down to be 70 years. This would be after Persia had defeated Babylon, probably in 538-ish, and uh, the 70-year mark would come at 536. So Daniel is nearing the end of the time foretold by Jeremiah and seeing that his people were about to be liberated and charged to go and rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem, it was an important time. It was a time when the Jews did not need to make the mistakes that they had made in the past. And so to prepare for that, Daniel says a prayer. 
a beautiful prayer, an eloquent prayer, an exemplary prayer, one of the longest prayers in inspired scripture. And uh, so we're going to study that a little bit, saving some of the applications for the third segment, but, but getting into it. And um, we, we see that in chapter 9 of Daniel, verses 3 through 19. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to pull out some uh, highlights from it. Starting with Daniel's preparation for the prayer in verse 3, you'll notice he says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he does several things here that are unusual to us. Uh, he turned his face to the Lord God. That reminds me of Daniel chapter 6 where you know he opens his windows to, uh, facing Jerusalem and uh, as he opens them he uh, faces Jerusalem and prays and and that that's not to say that Christians today need to open their windows towards um, Nashville or or Jerusalem you know it's not a approved example for Christians it was just what's it Nashville I, I just say that because there are a lot of churches in Nashville nice. it, it was a joke that didn't land but uh, <laughs> well, I thought you were gonna say like the Holy Land or Greece or yeah Jerusalem even. no that that's why it was a joke I wasn't no. serious that's good but anyway you know we're not commanded to pray facing any direction but this made Daniel comfortable. It put him in a frame of mind that he needed to be in in prayer. It's good for us to have habits that assist our prayer, that remove distractions or give us an attitude of worship or whatever. Uh, his habit was to face Jerusalem. We may have different habits, but uh, he did something that helped him pray routinely and often. Um, you also find him, and I don't think this was the usual practice, I think this was extraordinary for him, but he, he prayed with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And uh, the fasting was something that was done um, to afflict himself. I'm using some of the language from Psalm 35, which I think hints at the purpose of fasting and sackcloth more than any other passage. In verses 13 and 14, the psalmist says that he wore sackcloth and he afflicted himself with, with fasting. He says, I prayed with head bowed on my chest and I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. A lot of people ask questions about fasting. Why do I fast? Uh, the bottom line is fasting is to afflict yourself. Uh, to put yourself in a, a sober mood, a uh, humble mood, a mournful mood even, which is why the Lord said it wasn't appropriate uh, for his disciples when, when he was with them. The uh, people asked him why his disciples didn't fast like the Pharisees or the, the disciples of John the Baptist, and he said it's because the bridegroom is with them. And... Uh, they need not pray during, or they need not fast during times of, of joy, but during times of grief. And so uh, Daniel is in, you know, maybe not a time of grief, but certainly a sobering time where the people needed to get ready for a very important job, going to Jerusalem and rebuilding. Uh, so you see that um, attitude of smallness before the Lord, of humility before the Lord in preparation. And now we get into the prayer. So the, f the first thing we see Daniel doing in the wording of the prayer is he is confessing sin. 
And it's notable that as good as Daniel was, he wasn't just confessing the sins of his people, but he was also confessing his sins, presumably to, to ensure that there was no sin, obstacles of sin lying between himself and God as he prayed on behalf of his people. You'll note him many, many times throughout the prayer confessing our sin, not just their sin, but our sin. And in verse 20, it even says that he had been confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. I think that's a good practice for us to do today. It's, again, not commanded explicitly, but there is a, there are plenty of verses that say that sin can come between you and God and certainly can be an obstacle in your prayer life. So if you're praying on behalf of others, you should start with confession of your own sin uh, to remove the obstacles so that you can pray on behalf of others. Um, and that's what Daniel is doing here. Now, let's look at the confession in verses 4 through 6. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Uh, so he is mindful of how they had ignored the prophecies and confessing that. And he says in verse 14, The Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So while the Lord has remained righteous, they have not obeyed his voice. That's the basic confession. There are a lot of other things to this prayer, but I'm, I'm just surveying this. That's the heart of it. And I want to I go now to the answer to Daniel's prayer, which is very interesting. That begins in verse 20. Uh, the answer came in the form of another vision delivered by the angel Gabriel, whom we saw in chapter 8. In fact, Daniel even says, this is the man Gabriel, I think that's interesting that they called him a man, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. So he admits he had seen Gabriel before. Here he is again. Gabriel, every time you see him in the Old Testament, New Testament, he's delivering a message. Uh, we probably know him best as the angel who uh, delivered the message about the birth of Jesus to both Joseph the carpenter and uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. So, um... Gabriel comes, he's delivering a message, and the message is a vision of the 70 weeks. And so you have that number 70 appear again. See, Andrew, that was a great title for this episode, the 70s. You got the 70s from the beginning of the chapter and the 70s at the end of the chapter. So let's just read this. We're going to try to give an interpretation of it in the, the next segment where we dig a little deeper into this. But uh, for now, we're just going to try to get a good reading of it. Uh, so verse 24 is where that picks up. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So he gives like the the purpose for the decree of 70 weeks there. And there are like five points to it. So already it's very difficult to hold in your mind. It's just there's a lot going on here. Yeah, a lot of information. Yeah. In a very short amount of time. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's very compact. Mm-hmm. Um, now verse 25, he says, and this is Gabriel speaking, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, some translations have the Messiah there, which is notable because it's the only reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament, unless I'm mistaken. A prince, there shall be seven weeks. So he's now breaking down the 70 weeks, and the first sub-period, if you want to look at it that way, is a period of seven weeks. He says uh, seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is a second prince, by the way, the prince who is to come as opposed to the anointed prince, Uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Desolator is my favorite word in this in this chapter. Why not? Uh, well, it's just I've never heard that word before. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. I, it's the ESV. I think they could have just said the one who makes desolate who, or something. Yeah, the one who desolates. Yeah, no, desolator's better. Desolator. It's like a movie. I don't really like the way that I say desolator. it, but I think, yeah, yeah, if somebody had a good voice like that, it would sound really cool. Yeah, it would. Anything else we want to add besides our meditations on the word desolator? <laughs> yeah, and as far as the realm of uh, useful information goes, I think maybe we, we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll dive into what these 70 weeks represent. Hey, welcome back. Um, welcome back to us. Welcome back to you. Uh, glad that uh, you're still hanging with us, those of you who decided to. We're going to do our dead-level best to interpret Gabriel's explanation, mm-hmm. which I still find that ironic that he says, I've come for insight and understanding, and then he unloads the most difficult passage in the Bible to understand. I do think the original audience had an easier time with this than we do because they were, you know, brought up in apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of non-inspired apocalyptic literature belonging to the Jews, uh, showing that this was a part of their culture. They knew how to understand symbols. For example, the number seven. You know, uh, Christians know the number seven is important. Uh, We know about the seven churches of Asia, a lot of sevens in the book of Revelation, um, the seven signs in the gospel according to John. So we know it's a good number, but um, the Jews uh, knew more about that kind of thing than, than we do. And that's obviously something about what's going on here, the number seven being the number for divine perfection. Um, now, the 70 weeks, let's start with this. Um, 
first of all, let's start with the word weeks. All right. Let's start with The it. word weeks, that's a translation of a word that could just be times or sevens as the NIV translates it. Right. In the little uh, Hebrew dictionary I've got for that word, it's 70 and then weeks look almost identical. The only difference is the like the last letter and the vowel that goes with it. Uh, it's got the same root, which basically it's like 70 sevens. And it's because that word for weeks usually denotes, you know, like seven days. Yeah. So, which makes up a week. So, when you see something like sevens like that, it refers to a week. So, literally, I mean, if you're just taking it for its word value in Hebrew without, you know, any cultural meaning or context or anything, it would say 70 sevens. Yeah, I do think the NIV has the best translation on this one. Um I think all scholars just about recognize that we're dealing with groups consisting of seven years. Right. And I don't have a mathematical mind, so that kind of is hard for me to wrap my brain around. But mm-hmm. whenever you see the word weeks, think of, like you said, seven days in a week. So think of the, the idea of sevens. So we have 77s. Reminiscent of a passage you're probably familiar with in Matthew 18:22. Or Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he says, 70 times 7. Okay, so let's do that. What's 70 times 7? 490. Yeah, there you go. You did that before I asked you that. But yeah, Yeah, uh, it's 490. (laughs) So if we're right, we're dealing with, and, and look, we could be taking this way too literally already. But I believe that we are talking about a time period of 490 years, right? So he says 70 weeks, it's 70 sevens, 70 times seven, like the Lord said uh, in the passage you referenced, Mm -hmm. is 490 years. And then Gabriel does something really neat here, dividing those years into three sub-periods. So he, he speaks of seven weeks, which would be 49 years, Right. 62 weeks, which is 433 years, and then one week, which is seven Seven years. years. Yeah. So uh, we've got that. Now, I said five a minute ago, but there's actually six things that fit into that period according to verse 24. Across all three of those different little sub-periods, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's an important point. I'm glad you said that. Uh, There are six things. Going back to verse 24... He said these things would fit into this period. Maybe not all of them into each sub-period, but across all of them, these things are going to happen sooner or later. Transgression is to be finished. An end is to be made of sin. Number three, an atonement for wickedness is to be made. Number four, everlasting righteousness is to be brought in. Number five, the vision and prophecy are to be sealed up. And number six... The most holy, a place or a person, we're not sure which, the most holy place or the most holy person is to be anointed. Six things happening during the 70 weeks. Okay. Can I stop and ask you what you think about the place or person there? Because ESV translates it as place, but then in the footnote says also 
or, or thing or one, which would be person. So, I mean, what do you think about the ESV's decision to put place in the text and put thing or one in the footnote? Well, it's the most natural because you have the most holy place as a part of the mm-hmm. tabernacle and later the temple. Um, but then again, we're reading about a person who has not yet been introduced, who is obviously a most holy person. Maybe it means both because, um, yeah, you know, God and His temple are closely related. So the most holy person dwells in the most holy place. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's impo- one of those things. It's of, impossible to know for sure, and not a whole lot of difference. Right. Either way, right. You know, at the end of this, during the 70 weeks, there is going to be an anointed one and an anointed place, figuratively speaking. So, correct. I don't know. I think I just made a mess out of that. No, I think it's good. All right. Well, let's look at verse 25. So, in verse 25, Gabriel tells us when the 70 weeks are to begin. Did you catch that? They're to begin. Yes. This is probably the most important thing here, the starting place. Uh, From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Can we put that in easy terms to understand real quick? I had to read this verse like four times before I even understood the idea. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're saying that the beginning of these 70 weeks, which we have identified as 490 years. Yeah. So this is going to start when somebody sends out a word to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, correct? Yeah. Okay, it's so bottom we line. have to peg down when does a word go out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And, you right. know, if if you've been listening to our podcast, hopefully your minds are going back to, well, we haven't done Isaiah yet, but Isaiah 44, 45... Ezra chapter 1, the end of 2 Chronicles, and all of those places, Cyrus, king of Persia, makes a decree to go back and build Jerusalem. But here's the problem. There are, if if you get into it, there are a lot of these decrees to go build Jerusalem. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, but... Between one of these decrees that that we're talking about and the appearance of the coming of the Anointed One, or the Messiah, there should be about 483 years. Because in this prophecy, Gabriel says there's there's a... (laughs) Man, I am totally choking on this. There's a seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's 63 weeks, which is 483 years. There we go. Right? Okay, so that's how I came up with that, I think. And um, so to, to back up there, between the decree and the coming of the Messiah, there are 483 years. Right? Right. Okay, so which decree? So I mentioned the decree of Cyrus, the most familiar one, Ezra chapter 1. That came out in 536 B.C., and uh, that's going to be way too early because it would have the Messiah coming in 53 B.C. Yeah. And Jesus didn't come for another 50 years. If you talk about his coming in terms of his being Mm -hmm. born, which we're not even sure if that's 
when the coming starts, you know. Right. But, but anyway, yeah, that's a whole other issue to deal with. Right. Right. And I think I think we got to be a little loose here because we're dealing with a round number that is clearly symbolic. So I don't think anybody should go crazy over a few days or a few years off. Well, I mean, come on. If it was eleven fifty nine or midnight. Like yeah, right, right. Was it? <laughs> but that I, I think Cyrus's decree can definitely be eliminated. It's way off. All right. There's another decree, and the problem with this is this decree is not as well known by us, but it definitely would have been on the mind of Daniel, who was living around these times, a decree issued by Artaxerxes I in the seventh year of his reign, it's a decree that we talked about in our Ezra podcast in Ezra chapter 7, verses 12 through 26. Um, that's 457 B.C. So you go 49 years from that point, which is the first seven weeks, you're at four, 408 B.C., by which time the wall streets moat around the city were completed, which fits nicely with the prophecy. And then you go forward another 434 years which is the 62 weeks, and you come to A.D. 27. Uh, that accounts for the zero year before mm-hmm. 1 B.C. and A.D. 1. Yeah, We're getting zero. very technical here. Mm-hmm. And uh, A.D. 27, many people believe, marked the beginning of Christ's public ministry. Uh, Jesus' ministry was three years. Uh, the date of his death, most people say, is A.D. 30. So... We're looking at something that's really possible there. There's a third decree. There are a lot more decrees, but the three most likely ones are the ones I'm going over here. Well, let me ask you this. We are in the first year of King Darius. What year are we in? Oh, man. I don't have my other notes in here with me. My computer just died. Uh, so I'm. This is around... So, so Daniel... We said he was about 80 years old. Yeah. The reason I ask is because Daniel is realizing, okay, we're getting close to the end of these 70 years of captivity, right? Yes. So if I'm Daniel and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking I'm close to the end of the 70 years and Gabriel's giving me a prophecy about a decree that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. The first decree that we mentioned by Cyrus, which I'm most familiar with, is 536 BC. Right. This is probably around 538 BC. The the time of this the first year of Darius the Mede, the time Daniel is writing this down or, or receiving this vision. 538 a couple of years before Cyrus's, Cyrus's decree. decree, way before these other decrees that were thrown out, like Got the it. the second one attributed to Artaxerxes the first, that's a uh, 457. We're talking, you know, long time after Daniel's dead there. Okay, so we don't get any. I was, I was hoping that it was going to be in between because then we could say, well, it's got to be our Xerxes because that comes next. Mm-hmm. But I guess we yeah. can't do that. No. But it's still... Not really. It looks, based on what you just walked us through, if we're going to take this literally, and I know you said none of these interpretations are without their issues. Right. Uh, but it looks like that second one is the most powerful argument to me. So what are some of the holes? In well, that do you want to hear the third one? Because uh, I didn't do that yet. It's not It's not likely, <laughs> but there is a third third one. Another decree issued by Artaxerxes I in the 20th year of his reign. It's recorded in Nehemiah 2, 
And that, if you this calculate all that out, Nehemiah to go back, right? Yeah, the, For the exactly. First time in Nehemiah, right? And that was better known than the second one. But it takes us to A.D. 40, which is way too late for the Messiah being Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So like you said, the most likely one is the second one, issued in 457 B.C. Here's the problem with it. So, you know, in Bible classes we all learned that uh, Jesus was born in, in, you know, zero. Zero, yeah. Between B.C. 1 and A.D. 1. Um, but we have a problem when we start looking at the years of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in like 4 B.C., hmm. right? So um, Jesus had a little trouble with Herod the Great when he was a baby. So he couldn't have done that. You know, it wasn't Herod the Great's ghost. It had to have been Herod yeah. the Great, which means Jesus was born before um, zero, whatever. So he was born before 4 B.C. in actuality, which means he died not in 30, but um, earlier than... Well, actually, this adds up pretty well with that. Yeah. Because, every, you know, a lot of people say he died in 33 mm-hmm. by the the conventional calendar, and uh, that his ministry went from 30 to 33. This actually takes his ministry between 27 and 30, which is closer to the archaeological evidence that we have today, which tells us Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. Yeah. So it's actually not a, not a big problem there. It's uh, really close. Yeah. So. Yeah, we just solved you know, that problem. And this is the most <laughs> confusing go. thing to our listeners they've ever heard, I'm sure. But, I mean, come on, people. This is really difficult yeah. stuff. But either way, just to zoom out for a second, regardless yeah. of... Regardless of whether or not these years are meant to be exact and whether we're building up from Artaxerxes all the way through these weeks that are really years up to the death of Jesus and the establishment of this covenant uh, with the anointed one being Christ, regardless of that, it's good for us to recognize at the very least that this is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. Yeah. Yes. So I think if I were going to take a bottom line, like just give me the the spark notes, make it easy for me. This is a prophecy about the just the history that's going to take place from where Daniel is and Daniel nine with Darius the Mede, all the way through what's going to happen uh, with Nehemiah later, as we talked about. They're going to go back. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. There's going to be a time, and then Christ is going to come back, and then He is going to make. A sacrifice, and then yeah. there's going to be another defiling of the temple, and then there's yes. going to be a period of judgment after that. Yeah. So it's just walking you through Daniel to the end of. Um. Yeah, Daniel's and time. you know, tying in with that, you'll note that at the end of the sixty-nine weeks, the work of the atonement would be completed. You know, he's going to be cut off. That's language that could describe the crucifixion. So going along with what you said, the the 5,000-mile-high um, view of this, 50,000-mile-high, mm-hmm. whatever the expression mm-hmm. is, uh, the view of this that we really need to hold on to is there is a theory that works with this prophecy, which is among 200, 300 other some odd prophecies 
pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And right. this is an amazing one that relates to the date of his death. And if you're interested in studying the dates and everything, this can, I mean, if you take that second one, it, it's just shocking the math that adds up with that second one. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, to get to A.D. 27, when we're really not sure about our calendars, that that is really close for a guy in the 6th century to mm-hmm. get. You know, just if he was just like a Nostradamus type person just writing things. So it, it must be inspired. I mean, this mm-hmm. is one of the clearest examples of predictive prophecy. Yeah. Let me let me point out a couple more things before we run out of time here. Um, right. It it's helpful to notice that there are two princes, not one mentioned. Because, well, you know, if you think you're just reading about one prince, then he looks like a good guy sometimes, and then he looks like a bad guy. Well, there are two princes. There's one that's a good guy. He's the anointed one or the Messiah, depending on what translation you're reading. And then there's a bad prince who's destroying the people, destroying the city, destroying the sanctuary. Um, committing desolations. He's the desolator. Uh, so you got that. Um, some other interesting wording. The Messiah will make a firm covenant with many for one week. He's going to establish a new covenant. Jeremiah said this, and Daniel was familiar with Jeremiah, so this shouldn't be news to anybody. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant. Uh, Daniel mm-hmm. talks about a new covenant as well, which is the New Testament. And then you have this other difficulty in verse 27. In the middle of the week, this is the very final week, week 70. In the middle of that week, which is if we're doing this, counting each day of the week as a year, that's at three and a half years, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Well, when Jesus died, there was no more need for sacrifices because he was the ultimate sacrifice all other sacrifices pointed to. And so um, that's the end of the sacrifices occurring there in three, three and a half years into the last week or whatever. Right. And um, that last period of seven. Yeah. There. And then the second prince, the one who is to come, he's going to come in at the end of the three and a half weeks on the wing of abominations until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Uh, so. This is another thing open to interpretation. A lot of people are going to read the end of time into that. That doesn't really add up because this has to be something that has to come on the heels of Jesus' sacrifice, which adds up very nicely with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans, which occurred in the year A.D. 70, pretty close to the death of Jesus, and also something that Jesus talked about quite a bit and used language from Daniel use language from this part of Daniel in Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. Now, Matthew 24 is confusing to people because half of it talks about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the first century, and another half of it talks about the second coming of Christ, which is not to come until some point in the future. So, again, you know, your background and your ways of interpreting apocalyptic literature are going to weigh in on whether or not you believe this interpretation that we're giving. Another problem that people have is, well, that's not three and a half years that you're talking about there at the end. That's that's longer than that. Yeah. But you have to understand in apocalyptic literature, three and a half years or three and a half days or three and a half periods of time 
you'll often see time times and half a time or three and a half and that's a very right. familiar numeric symbol meaning an undetermined period of time right now you you can choose not to believe me on that that's fine but you have to contend with a I lot of places you. in the book of revelation and daniel uh which have it so we've you know have we made a total mess out of this yes i feel better yeah. about it than i did when we started so yeah we can't trying to walk through it and, and I know there are places where I sounded very confused but I hope that our listeners are not frustrated by that but just realize this is a really difficult passage to interpret right a lot of dates to keep in mind a lot of numbers some people are really bored by that but um, <laughs> uh, let me end on this um, not end the podcast but in this segment um, in first Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. Peter is talking about the prophets who prophesied about the Christ. Uh, we're looking at the not only the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to come, but also the time. He mentions the times. There are only just a few prophecies related to the time of the Messiah's coming. Three that I can think of. Mm-hmm. One is a possible from Genesis 49 in the prophecy to Judah that Jacob gives to his son Judah, something about, you know, when the scepter is removed from um, God's people, mm-hmm. um, the Messiah will come, Shiloh will come. That's a very difficult passage there. And then the other two are from Daniel. When we talked about the first one in this podcast on chapter Daniel chapter 2, which is the vision of the statue made of Mm -hmm. the layers of metals. It is said during the days of the kings of the iron and the clay, Mm -hmm. a kingdom will be established that will never be destroyed. Well, there's a time. And then here is another one, uh, which is focused more on time, but is not as clear as Daniel 2. So you, you have some prophecies on times. They're not that many. But they were important, at least to Peter, who wrote that in First Peter chapter 1. Well, if you're bored to death with numbers and math and time, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with some very practical application. Okay, so we're back for our third and final section, and we want to wrap things up by making some kind of practical application for our life when this podcast is over with. So how come this is all great and good, but what do we do with it now? And one of the biggest applications we want to look at, uh, I think we can find a lot of applications, uh, certainly a lot of the ones we want to make from this chapter in verse 19. So Daniel, at the end of this prayer that we have recorded, he says this in verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So basically, verse 19 is a summation of the entire prayer that he's just made. And what I want to do, Drew, is we can just go back and forth and bounce some ideas off of what can we learn about our prayer life based on this prayer from Daniel. Uh, 
Um, and the first thing that Daniel encourages or that Daniel asks for in his prayer, he says, O Lord, hear. And there are a lot of characters throughout the Old Testament that are not afraid to really call upon God to hear them. Um, they use very uh, strong language, not in the sense of you know bad language, but strong is in very forceful and uh, use a lot of imagery to show how serious they are. People like Job, uh, David are two in particular from the Old Testament that I can think of that truly call upon the name of the Lord and basically beg for him to listen to them. Right. And, and you know, you don't do that unless you're going through a trial, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, in, in periods of trial, God does see us, but it seems as if he doesn't hear. And so whenever you have Job or David or Daniel saying, oh, Lord, hear, there is an implication there that they're going through a difficult time. You know, Daniel's yeah. been in captivity his entire life. Mm-hmm. He knows that God sees him, but that language is the language of trial and suffering. You don't you don't go to somebody that you're in perfectly good situation with and say, "Listen to me." Will you listen? You you feel that it's already there when things are going well. So there's an implication yeah. here of trials and. Uh, praying, crying out in the trial. Mm-hmm. And there's also, on top of that, I think the expectation that he will hear. Yeah, so, definitely. You know, it's twofold. I think it's a good encouragement for us to, when we pray, especially in times of difficulty, to be able to come from a place where we're asking, genuinely asking God to hear our prayers and then also to have the faith attached to it that we know that he will. Um, so he says, first, O Lord, hear. Then he says, O Lord, forgive. And like you mentioned, I think maybe in the first section, uh, you know how a lot of men who get up to do public prayer will say to start with, forgive me of my sin, and then you know pray for everyone else as well. Um, but this is the next, one of the other, um, I, I can't talk. Uh, this is one of the next big applications that we have here on prayer uh, is forgiveness. And David, or David, Daniel, David's honest too. <laughs> I've got David on my mind. We just did a Psalms class with the teenagers. Yeah. And we talked about prayer. So Well, it's also the afternoon. Yeah. And it might be time for a nap. It's raining. It's nap time. (laughs) We just got back from a mission trip. I'm going to sleep on the floor for a week. Anyway, (laughs) if you want me to complain, I'll just send me an email and I'll complain to you later. Uh, Anyway, he says, oh, Lord, forgive. And I think the honesty of Daniel here is it's really staggering. You know, he is he's willing to admit to all the wrongs that his people has done but he also says that he has done them as well now in what capacity did daniel do those we don't know um there's no big sin of daniel recorded here in daniel like that he bowed down to an altar or that he participated in some kind of babylonian worship it's hard to imagine him even being tempted to do that when he would he would go to a lion's den Right over being seen in prayer, mm-hmm. I you know so. But there is there's something apparently that he is including himself with his people. Maybe he's just associating himself with them by way of you know they're his people and he's one of them. Yeah. Um, but well, it does remind me of and this. nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah. No. Oh yeah, definitely. It it makes me think of this great honesty that we yeah. should have in prayer. And the only way we're going to get forgiveness is to do what 
Daniel did in confessing his sin. And something that I that I think is 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 silly is when we try to maybe you know if we're if we're sinful or if we feel like we've committed some kind of sin we think well I don't really feel like I'm in a good place to pray right now because I just did this or you know I just did that I don't think right. I'm really prepared to go to God in prayer but you look at some of the most beautiful psalms are David going to God in prayer when he's just crushed under the weight of the sins that he has committed and mm-hmm. prayer is gives us the only opportunity that we have to have a 100% honest form of communication. Yeah. It's not possible to have completely honest communication with another person, even our own spouse to a certain degree, because you can say whatever you want and have your body language acting however you want, but at the end of the day, nobody knows what is going on in your mind at that moment to the fullest extent other than you and God. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to God, you don't have that barrier. You don't have any difficulties in communication when you talk to God because he knows all things already. He understands you better than you even understand your own self. Yeah. So prayer gives us this great opportunity. If we're going to get forgiveness for the sins, we have to be willing to be honest to our own selves, first of all, and to carry that over to be honest with God. Yeah. Well, also, I think it's really interesting in verse 18, he gives the basis for this petition for forgiveness. And it's really important that we remind ourselves of this. He says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It's grace. And, you know, people that say there's grace in the New Testament and wrath in the Old Testament have not read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of grace. Right. And here's another example. So he sets all of that up. You know, before he asks for forgiveness, he points out that he can be accepted only because of God's great mercy. And you'll find that in David's prayers as well in the Psalms. I mean, it, mm-hmm. whenever we pray for forgiveness, we should always be mindful of the fact that the basis of that is on the 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 loving character of God and not anything that we've earned. Yeah, you know, that's the bottom line there. So, yeah, oh Lord, forgive. And then this next one here, oh Lord, and I know we're probably running short on time here. No, we're good. Okay, good. Uh, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Now this one might cause us a little bit of difficulty in our prayer life because it seems like Daniel's being pretty strong here, saying do something about it. And it reminds me. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me very much of one of the studies that we did in the Minor Prophets not too long ago with Micah, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's known as the questioning prophet. Uh, Habakkuk. Right? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Okay, sorry, I knew I was going to mess that up. I was looking, trying to find it. So Habakkuk, <laughs> you know, when he prays, there's that part in chapter two where he says, "Okay, I'm going to stand here, uh, basically like in a tower." And watch, and we'll see what God has to say about what I just said. Yeah, so yeah. He's yeah. basically challenging God to act, mm-hmm. to answer this case he's built up against God. God, why are you allowing all this injustice to happen? You're too righteous for this. And then he's like, okay, so now God's going to have to respond to that. So let's yeah. see him act to that. So it's very think, bold, very bold. What do you think about Daniel here saying? Because this is this is an Job ex- was bold. Yeah, also. And these are imperative statements, and I don't think any of us are comfortable in prayer 
giving God an imperative statement, telling him to do something like pay attention and act. God, act. You know, I don't think we're, we like to word it in such a way that if it is your will, will you act or things to that nature. But what do you think about, can we learn anything from this about uh, boldness in prayer? How do we combine boldness and humility? What's the appropriate Mm -hmm. way to, to have faith, but at the same time to be reverent? Well, I think for me, what it highlights is the relational nature of prayer, which we forget many times. Um, now, we, we certainly don't... Okay, so if God were like a gumball machine, and you know, and prayer was like a spell or an incantation, mm-hmm. where the magic was in the words itself, then there would be no urgency to it, there would be no passion, no fear of not being heard. You would just simply say the right words, the magic would take place, and the result would fall out, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, prayer is not a prayer is a relationship between a father and a child, and so in relationships you're not sure what the other person is going to do. Um, you know, I have to be careful there because God is always faithful and never lies. But I hope people are following me here. In a relationship, there is uncertainty. Right. Um, of can, some things. Yeah, we can know. ask him to hear. We can ask him to act. But at the right. end of the day, we have it to It may recognize. not be his will. His will may be hidden from you. Yeah. Uh, he may have things going on you haven't considered that are better for the situation. So because prayer is a relationship and not a magic spell or something like we often treat it, you say things like, pay attention. Are you listening to me? Hear me out. Please act. I know I don't deserve this, but do it anyway because of your mercy, not because of my righteousness. Um, yeah. Not for, you know, I, does delay not also go with this? I mean, doesn't yeah, it? it does. So delay not for your I'll own sake around. because of your city, your people are called by your name. So Daniel is adding that in saying, you know, I'm not basing this on selfish ambition because I know that those kinds of prayers aren't answered but I'm basing this upon what is going to glorify you and bring um, bring um, uh, holy uh, when, see I'm having the problem too <laughs> yeah. uh, bring honor to your name so I want to bring honor to your name to your city to your people and that is why I'm doing this so if you're if you're praying with urgency that God be glorified, there's nothing disrespectful in that. If he was saying, pay attention and act and don't delay because I need this done by 5 p.m. this afternoon, there's a problem. But if he's saying, pay attention, act, delay not because of your city, because of your people, because of your name, he's got first things first. He's, yeah. he's got his priorities straight. And he's, and he's considering that he's in a relationship, not in a, you know, a... Um, a gumball machine or whatever. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that last point because uh, I do think it's it's great how Daniel identifies the reason for his prayer. You know, he's saying not for just for him. He's saying I'm. We are your people, and so people are associating your power and your greatness with us. Yeah. And right now, look where we are. So mm-hmm. restore us, so people will look at you across the world with this. You know the light of the world mentality again you know yeah so I, I do think it's it not only calls those other things 
to our minds about prayer, about asking God to hear us, about being honest and asking for forgiveness, about you know having a sense of urgency and really uh, pleading with God, but also it really convicts us and challenges us to ask ourselves, why do we ask for these things in prayer? Yeah. Do we ask so that God may be glorified, or do we ask so that we can be more comfortable, so that we can have more luxury, so that we can, you know, so that we can be glorified? It it really challenges your thinking in prayer. Right. Right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, next time, I'm not going to say next week, but next time, next episode, we're going to finish the book of Daniel. At least that is what we hope to do. Right. And uh, hopefully we can make a little sense out of those last three chapters. Those are great chapters and ends on a really high note that I'm excited to talk about. In the meantime, send us some feedback through um, email, akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. You can look us up on the internet at the66podcast. No, the66.net. Yeah. Twitter, the66podcast. We got a Facebook page. We got it all. We're on the iTunes store. And iTunes and Google. Yeah, now, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but Google Play has recently released podcasts in their music app. Yeah. So you're going to have to break that thing down eventually because it's books and music yeah, and podcasts and everything. Yeah, everything's in there. So if you're like me and you use Google, which I don't know that a lot of folks are nowadays. Well, oh, sure. you use Google, yeah. So if you're like Drew and I and you're cool. That's right. And you use Google. You can find us now if you just search the 66 podcast. Please subscribe. 